Welcome to the podcast of Wiser, Women in Surgery at the Emory Residencies, where we share the careers and life stories of Emory surgeons across all specialties to recognize the diverse achievements happening right here at our own institution. Welcome back to the Wiser podcast. I'm Caroline Coleman, and my co-host today is Anita Despande, a PGY4 in the Emory ENT residency. It's not easy to be a pregnant surgeon. It's certainly not easy to be a pregnant surgical resident. Add in that your partner is almost 2,000 miles away in their own rigorous medical training. Also add in that you deliver your baby prematurely at 32 weeks. So um, my chief year was very dramatic. Um, My husband was in Boston starting his fellowship and I was in Houston and um, we had a baby and he was 32 week preemie. So I had a 32 week preemie my chief year. This is Dr. Beth Willingham. She's the current chief of the section of inpatient otolaryngology at Emory University Hospital. Let's briefly rewind to the beginning of her story. She had not always planned on becoming an ENT. Before college at Dartmouth, she had shadowed an OBGYN and thought she'd pursue that. It wasn't until her third year of medical school that her career path began to take turns. When I went to medical school, it was still, the first two years were very much just classroom oriented. And so I think now you may spend some more time in the, in, in the hospital in the first years, but the first years all all coursework. So, and my school was very primary care oriented. So they really um, pushed people into going into primary care. So th- we didn't do any subspecialty rotations really till the end of third year and you had to choose them. So I went through all the surgery meds, peds, all, you know, medicine, all, peds, all the general um, primary care specialties. And in the end, um, I did, you could choose if you wanted to do neurology or neurosurgery. And neurology was a was a much easier rotation, right? It was you know kind of nine to four, um, and neurosurgery you had to come in at four a.m. and round and stay till whenever, and it was seven days a week, and it was known to be much worse. Um, and I chose neurosurgery because I thought I would go crazy on the neurology rotation, um, and so then I decided I wanted to be a neurosurgeon um, after that. And so um, I did a couple subspecialty you know, sub-eyes in neurosurgery, but all the patients were really neurologically devastated and there wasn't a lot in the end that that they could do to help them. So as a last-ditch effort, I did um, ENT and I loved it. It was all the things that I liked about the surgery and the anatomy, um, but the patients did well. You could help them. They were generally healthy. Um, They had good outcomes. The people were nice. They, um, uh, you know, seemed to enjoy what they did. So I came to it later. It's here, at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, that she met her partner. They decided a couples match. He was pursuing internal medicine while she was applying into ENT. Yeah, so um, I actually, um, in my fourth year of medical school, started dating my best friend, and we couples matched, and that's how we ended up at Baylor. Um, And so um, he was in internal medicine and I matched an ENT, and back then the couples match, ENT was an early match, and the couples match was fairly dramatic. You had to sort of tell everybody and get the same interviews, and anyway, so we ended up in Texas, which was very random coming from Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we interviewed there, um, uh, the entire, the, the class that was gonna be my chief when I was a two was all women. 
So um, it was a very female heavy program. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that. So in addition to it had a children's hospital, a VA, a kid, the MD Anderson can Cancer Center, a private, a public hospital. It had sort of like a Grady at Bintop. Um, so um, it had a breadth of training, but also there were um, a lot of women in that program. Having an all-female class of residents was remarkable for the 2000s. In 2007, less than 30% of ENT residents were women. This has increased only to 36% now. If those numbers sound low, consider this. Only 17% of America's practicing ENTs are women. But I know that there were some programs where I was heavily recruited because they hadn't had a, a female resident in decades. And so they had a reputation for not being female friendly. And so um, they were really trying to recruit women to go to them. So I know that there was, you know, a, a, a split, but, um, but Baylor, for whatever reason, they attracted a lot of female residents, I don't know. Then, during her chief year, she had her first kid, the 32-weeker we had heard about before. Her son did well, but she describes this time as going into, quote, survival mode, and just having to get to Boston to reunite her family. She makes it seem like she just scraped by, but her first post-training job was affiliated with a Harvard teaching hospital. So, um, you know, and you apply, you're in your fourth year for fellowships, and I was just, I was just, you know, that's not where I was, and so I was in sort of survival mode, raise a kid, finish residency, go, you know, reunite my family, and so um, I went to Boston and I got a job, and it was actually... A, an affiliate of uh, Mass Eye and Ear. Um, and so it was considered, you know, like I operated at Mass Eye and Ear and I had residents come through and, and medical students. Um, so it sort of felt like everything in Boston feels academic. So no matter where you are, you, f you feel like you're out of school. Um, and then when we came here, same thing. Then we were having our third kid. So um, I don't know. I got on the path of being a doctor mom and um, and working um, and kind of supporting the family really you know well my husband finished his fellowship so then when we got here five years in I, you know I was like all right I miss you know tough tough cases and having the time to spend on tough cases and um, having the resources to think about tough cases and that sort of collegiality of um, how are we going to solve this problem um, you know, the private practice that I was in was um, not meeting those those needs. So, um, but yeah, it's, an, it's not an obvious jump to make, and how do you make that jump um, when you've been out for, I don't know how long I'd been out, like eight years? Yeah, and no fellowship, yeah. So after being out of the formal academic arena for almost a decade, she tried to come back. I had written our chairman uh, a letter you know he wasn't my chairman then and I said I'm looking for a, a job if you need a generalist and he wrote a very polite letter back and said well we we only you know we're a subspecialty tertiary care we just do fellowship trained people and I was like all right well keep me in mind and then two years later he reached out and said we need someone at the main hospital because we moved locations and there's nobody, we have no ENT presence at our main hospital. So when there are emergencies or airways or bleeding or consults, you know, um, we need someone to take care of those. And so they needed a generalist. So um, that's just a plug for like, you know, if at first the answer is no, just 
reaching out is never a bad idea, even if you know, even if the the initial answer is no. Reaching out is never a bad idea. Two years later, you know, um, the answer was come back and let's take a look. When joining Emory in 2014, she became the first ENT hospitalist in the Emory system. This type of otolaryngology service was first started at UCSF less than three years earlier, and only a few ENT hospitalists exist across the nation now. So we wanted to know what that job was and what it meant. So, um, so what I do is um, essentially, you know, from during working hours eight to five, um, see inpatient consults um, either in the emergency room or on patients who are in the hospital and they have an acute um, otolaryngology issue and they need a consult. Um, so they can be anything from urgent, you know, airways and bleeding or invasive fungal sinusitis to routine kind of dysphagia, dysphonia, um, vocal cord paralysis, hearing loss, you know, just things that kind of need a rule out of anything major and then follow up. So it can be either. Um, but um, it's all inpatient. There's no um, clinic. There's no outpatient. Um, ele- there's no elective practice. Do you miss that part of your practice? I do, yeah. So it's interesting because um, there aren't really very many models like this. Um, the first one was at UCSF um, in 2012, I think, and they published their experience. And now um, a couple other places have done it, Louisiana, um, UPenn has a similar model. Um, but um, the longevity of it, I don't, I don't know, right? So how, for how many years can you put out fires mm-hmm. and not know what's, when the other shoe is gonna drop and just not have an elective practice? Mm-hmm. It's like being on call all the time. The nice thing is at five o'clock you're not on call anymore. I don't know, I don't know what, it's gonna, what it's gonna look like. Um, and that the other programs where they've, where they've started this, and you know, the cutoff of when someone starts saying, you know, what else can I do is about five years, um, which is exactly where I am. (laughs) So it sort of um, begs the question, do you need to combine it with an outpatient practice? Like, do you need two people to sort of, um, you know, do the inpatient work half time and do do the, have an elective practice half time? Um, Because I think from a skills standpoint, wanting to maintain your skills um, on the elective stuff, um, and then also from just a day-to-day, um, you know, uh, I think you're gonna, you, you need you need both. So I do miss it. Um, and in talking to the handful of people around the country who are doing it, um, they miss it too. We then asked her to reflect on some of the most memorable patients she had interacted with over her career. Some made an impression because they were challenging technically. So Dr. Willingham, I know here at Maine, the residents always talk about how we have the weirdest, most interesting, most complicated, really complex, really strange consults. Um, and a trach is something that we do routinely, but I know I've done you know, a couple of trachs with you that have been a little less than routine. And I remember one patient where we had a bar- you know, she was a bariatric patient, her BMI was in the 70s, and we were both kneeling on the stretcher to try to operate. And do you want to talk about some of the more complicated or complex patients you've had? Yeah, everybody here is pretty complex. Um, so they either have no platelets um, or no immune system. They're neutropenic and thrombocytopenic, so they have infections and bleeding. And um, and then the only trachs, um, 
that I get called for because I think a, a lot of the trachs here are done um, percutaneously. And so I always get called for the trachs where the BMI is over 50 and the patient's on aspirin and Plavix. Um, that can't be stopped. Exactly, that can't be stopped. So this lady was here with um, COPD exacerbation and the flu, and so she had respiratory failure, but she was so big, BMI of 70, that they, even though she was resolved from a pulmonary standpoint, they couldn't get her off the vent. So she needed a trach. Um, and yeah, so we brought her down on her big ICU bed. I think she was five foot and however many pounds puts you at BMI of 70. And um, um, her neck was so short, you know, you could barely palpate her landmark. So we, you know, put her on a giant roll and then we used foam tape to, to tape her chin so it was pointing to the ceiling and then we had to tape it to the bed. Um, and then we taped her, kind of her neck panis and her chest panis and her um, arms down. Um, and then we got on the bed and you were on one side and I was on the other side and Laura was at the, the head and um, it probably took us 45 minutes just to find her, her trachea. Um, and then I remember we went back up to the ICU. I escorted her back to the ICU and, and we got up there and they looked at me they're like, so we, we were just wondering, um, did everything go okay? What, why did it take so long? <laughs> <laughs> I just looked at him and I was like, do you, you okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> Any I've ever done a trachea kneeling on someone's before. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, I was sore. My hamstrings were sore the next day. I was sore. Perhaps it makes sense that these technically challenging specialties, like ENT, often attract athletes. Dr. Willingham's hobbies include sports like basketball, which she played growing up. She's only five foot three for those of you that aren't here. She also enjoys running, bar, yoga. But her other hobbies include reading, discussing ideas, thinking and highlight a seemingly ubiquitous trait that attracts people to medicine, a fascination with the human condition. Some of Dr. Willingham's other memorable patients hint at this theme. There's another patient who came to the emergency department with her husband, really sweet couple um, from Asheville. And um, she um, had a very advanced um, oral cavity oropharyngeal cancer and was her speech was um, you know garbled and her teeth were all loose and um, and it smelled like cancer. You walked in there and it smelled like cancer and she was drooling. And um, their faith was such that they believed that um, God was healing her and they did not seek any care, any Western care, any doc any care from a doctor because you know their faith um, dictated that she was she was actively being healed by the Lord. And the only reason they presented is because she couldn't eat and um, she was having trouble breathing. And so it was this very complicated dance of um, she didn't want any care. She didn't want the cancer treated because that would have been a violation of her beliefs. Mm -hmm. But she wanted to eat and breathe. And um, we talked for probably 45 minutes, almost to the point of being in circles. Um, and I finally just tried to keep it as simple as I could that um, I couldn't make her eat again, um, but I was worried that she was not going to be able to breathe, and what I could do is put a trach in, and that that was not going to violate her beliefs because I wasn't treating the cancer. I was just going to help her breathe. So she consented to an awake trach, which we did, um, but um, she never um, 
agreed to any other form of intervention for her disease and um, and uh, ultimately was discharged and um, we did get word that she that she died within a few weeks but the saddest thing was in the time that she was here you know she was here for probably three to five days um, her husband brought in all these pictures of all their family and she had three young kids three kids under the age of seven and um, she probably had um, one of these HPV squamous cell cancers, non-smoker, non-drinker, you know, oral, oral pharyngeal cancer, which is really quite treatable, right? So you catch them early, even late, and they do great. And so she could have really survived, and she, had, she left this beautiful family behind. The four tenets of medical ethics, acting for the benefit of the patient or beneficence, not inflicting any harm or non-maleficence, respecting the patient's decision or autonomy, and ensuring an equitable distribution of risks, benefits, and resources for justice. Autonomy can often be the most challenging of these tenets to respect. You know, as a doctor, that you can fix something. It may be a slam dunk cure, or maybe you just give someone a few more years. But if the patient doesn't want to be treated, doesn't want to be cured, you have to honor that as a physician. Take it from Dr. Willingham. Sometimes that never sits well. Because it just felt like such a waste, you know, of this woman's life and her family, and she's orphaned her children, and if only she'd sought care, but then you're up against these really powerful beliefs. Um, I never could square it. I never could square it in my head, you know. Um. A tale of two patients. One technically difficult. One difficult on, instead, a humanistic level. Such are the cases that come through an academic hospital, and such are the challenges that attract surgeons like Dr. Willingham. Since being a part of Emory, Dr. Willingham has excelled. She was awarded the Hidden Gem Award at Emory in 2016, and has established policy and procedures for the inpatient consult service, including the code surgical airway to minimize lost airways. Her parting advice for future surgeons? You know, the right thing is usually the the harder thing. Um, and if you're asking someone for advice, it's usually because you know what you should do and you maybe want someone to tell you that you can do something else. Um, the other one is if you think about doing a trach, do it. Um, That's a great one. Yeah, and that one's easier to remember. <laughs> um, if you think about it, just do it. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview.